Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Good morning. Uh, this morning, uh, we're having a presentation from one of the trainers at Leader Dog on um, matching our dogs to the person they're going to and uh, what goes into all of that and how they figure that out and some training, whatever she wants to talk about and she can explain. But I thought it'd be really interesting to find that out because I really have always wondered how they, how they uh, match the dog to the person. And because they don't usually meet you in person before you get up there. So um, I'll let Catherine take over. Her name is Catherine Martin. And she was one of my trainers when I first went to Leader Dog. Okay. Good morning, Catherine. Good morning, Cheryl. Thank you. Thank you guys for having me here. Um, my name is Catherine Martin, as Cheryl said. And I am a team supervisor and senior guide dog mobility instructor at Leader Dogs for the Blind. Um, so I'm coming here to talk to you today about matching. So I guess I will just jump right in. So the title of my presentation is The Inside Scoop, Finding the Perfect Guide Dog for Each Individual. And matching is, is an art and a science. There's a lot of information that we get about the dogs and we get information about our clients. And then we have to put that all together and hope for the best. <laughs> But we do a lot of, there's a lot of background work we do in the meantime as we're making our way to uh, giving the clients the dogs during class. So what is matching? Matching is the process for identifying the most suitable dog for a client. So an appropriate client-dog match is extremely important because this is the dog that the client's going to be working with for, you know, 10 to 12 years. And it's really important that we make sure that the dogs work for the clients and the clients are happy with the dogs and everybody's, uh, everybody's happy. So uh, a good client-dog match is important because it, it'll end up with safe, effective, and comfortable form of mobility for the client. And the client's able to physically work with, maintain, and control the behavior of the dog. So those are all really important things that we take into account. So matching is important because it's important that the dog meets the client's needs and abilities. So the, the temperament and sociability of the dog fit the client's lifestyle and personality. So we want to make sure that the dog, their temperament is what the client needs. So what each person, when they come in, do they want a dog that's going to love up on them and be really physical, want a lot of physical contact from them? Or do they want a dog that's a little more aloof and just going to be calmly laying by their side? Um, what kind of, do they, do they want a dog that's going to be excitable or a dog that's going to be a little bit more reserved? Everybody has a different preference for what kind of dog they need for their lifestyle. Uh, it's important that the dog works effectively in the client's area of travel and on all forms of transportation that the client uses. So it's important that if you live in the country, that your dog's going to work well for you out in the country or in a, a busy city, or if you're going to be um, working like in a suburban area, 
We want to make sure that this dog is, a, is perfect for that environment. Uh, the dog needs to work at the pace and have a, a comfortable pull and harness that the client, for the client. Um, the dog's size is important. We can do adjustments with the harness to make sure that the dog can work well, even if it's a smaller dog with a larger client or a larger dog with a, a shorter client. Uh, we want to make sure that uh, we can do some harness adjustment, but overall we want to make sure that the sizes match pretty well. Um, and it's extremely important that the client is able to control the dog. So the dog is not too much dog for the client. On the other hand, we don't want the client to have to be cheerleading the dog along if the dog's not working to the pace and to the pull of the, the client's needs. So we take a lot of information from clients when they're applying. Um, and this is what we use to match the dogs. So they fill up, clients fill out an application with lots of physical information, um, talking about medical information. They talk about um, their home environment. Uh, if they're working outside of the home, where do they work? If they travel, uh, what kind of routes do they have for the dog? Um, what kind of orientation and mobility they've done to prepare for getting a dog? Um, and then also information about hearing or residual vision and how their, their journey of adjusting to blindness uh, is also important. So we look at physical attributes. So we look at the client's height and build and size and everything. You know, the, so we want to make sure that the dog and the client look, well, look good together and are, are matched well together. Uh, we also look at physical abilities. Um, everybody has different le levels of strength and flexibility, um, dexterity, their balance. Everybody's balance is a little different, and they walk with a different type, different gait, um, what their posture's like, and the reflexes. How quickly can you react to something that a dog's going to do? So we take all of those things into account, as well as... Um, we, uh, let's see, as well as we look at home environment. So what are their fam the family like at home? Do they have children? Do they have, are there elderly in the, in the household? Um, who's all there and who the dog's going to be interacting with on a daily basis? Uh, do they have other animals in the house? So we want to find a dog that'll fit really well into the household. Also, we look at their work environment. So are they in the country, the city, suburbs? Is it a busy environment? Is it a quiet environment? Uh, what kind of traffic conditions are there? And then expected workload. So the number of routes, um, how long are they routes? How intense are they? Uh, they settle. Does the dog have to settle for a long time with the client at like at a workplace or at appointments? Um, and how complex the travel environment is. And then we, you know, make sure that orientation and mobility skills are, are good for having a dog and that the client can independently travel and have, you know, with confidence. And hopefully with the dog, even sometimes it'll be even more confidence. So we're just, we just want to make sure that we match those skills and that the client is, is ready to take on all those responsibilities of having a guide dog as well. Um, so we also look at hearing, um, 
is the client hard of hearing or, or deafblind? And if those are the cases, then we actually have a separate program uh, that we use. And we're, I'll talk about a little bit later about how we match dogs for that program, because sometimes there are different things we need to take into account. Um, with regards to re residual vision, we look if, if the client has any usable functional vision, um, how stable is their vision, um, or do they have a total loss of vision? And we, we take all of those things into account also when matching with the dog. And then we also take into account, there's a section on our application for the dog, the client to specify preferences. So is there a type of dog that you would like to work with more than any other type of dog? Do you like golden retrievers, Labradors, German Shepherds? You want black, yellow, um, what color preference? How big? Do you want a dog that's gonna be larger? Do you want a dog that's gonna be smaller? Um, do you have a, a gender preference? Uh, what is your, you know, is there a preference for your lifestyle? Would you prefer, let's say, to have a dog with a, a black coat because you you wear a lot of black pants in, or you wear a suit or something? So, you know, there's different reasons for different preferences, and it's always good to uh, look at that when we're matching and to make sure that you keep the clients happy, giving them what they want. If as much as we can, we want to make the, the best dog match. Um, we also take into account if the client has worked with the dog before and what their experience is. And are there any special considerations? So does the client have any physical or health or, or requests, um, such as a dog like being trained to work on the right side for a certain reason? Um, we always take those into account because sometimes that the dog has to be trained specially for some of those considerations. Okay, so the actual process. So what we do is as a training team, we train lots of dogs, usually more dogs than that we will issue in class or that we will deliver. So we have extra available. And so we begin training them. Normally we're starting out right now with about 40 dogs starting out to train. Um, and then we get midway through our training and we figure out which dogs are most likely to succeed in the program. And we have a meeting, we call it our matching meeting, where we review the health and the training records of all the dogs. And we have the instructors um, briefly describe each dog. So all the dogs on the team, we know a little bit about each of the dogs on the team so that we can come together and make the best matches for the clients. And then we review all the client information that we have. So the clients that have gone through and been approved through our um, admissions process, there's usually, there's a video and there's an application. And sometimes we've done visits with them, with our field representatives. So we get to know a little bit more about them. And we take all of that information and we sit down and we say, okay, uh, what, what are these clients can we bring into our class? And what dogs can we match best for them? So this is how we kind of pre-match the dogs before the clients come into class. Um, we look at their application. We look at their video. We look at the any record, reports from a previous class. So if they've come before and had a dog from us, or sometimes if they've gotten a dog from another school, we'll get like a reference letter from the other school saying, you know, what, what they needed from them. Um, or any reports from our field reps that have gone out and visited. So we can get all the information possible 
Uh, we also look specifically at all the medical, ophthalmological, optom optometric, and audiological reports to see the levels of vision and, and hearing. Um, we look at orientation and mobility reports to see where the, where the client travels, you know, what type of things do they like to do, and how are they very independent? Um, do they travel a lot with um, sighted guide or with other people? And we kind of, we like to see what the level is of their orientation training. Um, and lastly, we look at supplemental information. So we ask for references to make sure that um, we're giving our dogs to, to people that are, you know, able to take care for them. And we look at any phone calls or email conversations that we've had just to make sure we have the full picture of each client. And then we decide if the client is able to come into our class. And once we've decided that, we look at the dogs that we've trained and we, we figure out exactly, you know, if we have, we usually try to bring in clients that we, we have like one or two dogs that we really think would work well um, because the, the dogs still have to go through the second half of training. Um, and then we bring in, we assign the clients to the class and we, we collaborate within the team to make the best, we call it pre-matching. So we'll add a couple dogs to each client's name and we'll say, okay, these are the dogs we're thinking of for that client. And if there's just a very specific dog we want, um, we will make sure we know that, say this is the dog for this client. And then we work on individualizing their training. So we'll monitor the dogs as they go through, making sure they're still progressing through the cycle. And then we individualize uh, the training for the client. Um, so we look at the client's area. We look at if there's any special requests or anything that we can do with those dogs. And we try to make sure that we're, we're training that dog with that client in mind. Okay. And then we get to class. So prior to class, we call our clients. Um, so we give them, like we call them and we get some more detailed information, make sure everything is still up to date from their application and nothing has changed in their environment or with their family or with what they would like to do with the dog once they're home. And we also start de developing that instructor and client relationship. So we get to kind of know what their personalities are like and what their lifestyle is like. And all that information is so important for matching because we now know the personalities of the dogs that we've been training. And so we want to try and really match those personalities together so that the client and the dog are, uh, will work cohesively as a team. Uh, once the clients have come into class, we do Juno, which is where we use the harness without a dog to kind of teach the basics of working with a guide dog. And it gives us some more hands-on information. We take the client on routes with the harness and the client kind of gets a feel for what it's like, you know, the different turns and the different commands that we'll be using or cues that we use with the dogs. And that's really important. And we also get a feel for the client's um, pace and what kind of a pull they'd like in the heart with the dog and harness, um, what kind of routes that they're going to do, and it's really that personal meeting and personal like relationship building is very important because we learn what the client needs. Um, and then we take that information and we look at the dogs that we've, we were thinking of for that person. And we try to make the best match there based on personality. And then all of these factors we've talked about 
And I'll go into a little bit more depth about the factors as we go forward here. Sometimes during class, like we do everything we can to make sure that these matches are as perfect as we can get them. Um, but sometimes it doesn't work out and we do have to do a dog change. So we have to change to a different dog that we've had. And, and it's a very emotional and stressful process sometimes to give up a dog that you've been working with for even for a short time. So that's why we really try to make sure that these matches are good to start out with. Um, but being in class, you do have the ability to go to our canine development center and, and take another dog and change it for the dog in class. Uh, we do home deliveries as well, um, but we don't have the option of changing the dog during the delivery as much. So it's even more important that we get the good, a good match. When we do home deliveries, um, we do pre-class calls just like we do with class. So we'll develop a relationship with the client over the phone and get a feel for everything. Um, we look, sometimes there's opportunity for a visit to the client's home area to do Juno and to get a feel for how they walk in their home. Um, and so that, that's very, very helpful, uh, but that doesn't always happen. And we also, it's also helpful for us if we have information, if the client has used a dog from us in the past and we have the report or are able to talk to the instructor that they had, um, to give us more information about working with that, with the client and what they would like in a dog. All right, so going on. So the things that we look at from the dog side of it are the temperament. So the temperament is a relatively stable individual characteristics of behavior that show some consistency over time and across situations. So that's what we're looking at for the temperament of the dog, for example. Uh, some dogs are really eager to work and always on the move and they just want to go, 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 go and do their job. And that would um, not be good for a client that needs a dog to settle like in work or in their school environment for a long period of time because the dog really needs lots of routes during the day and they just need a really active handler. And sometimes they need to change up the routes to keep the dog engaged. Um, so that type of dog, we would look for a client that was more active. Um, another example of temperament would be a dog that wants constant physical contact. So they're always putting their head on your leg and looking and wanting you to pet them and to touch them, which would be really good for some clients who really like that. They want a dog who's right there and that they can just reach down and pet and they really, and the dog really enjoys it and the client enjoys it. Um, but some clients don't want that. They want a dog that's a little more aloof, that's just going to lay down and not need to be petted all the time. Um, so we, those are things that we look at with temperament to match to the client. Um, sociability is the level of maturity to handle busy social environments um, by remaining calm and settled. And some dogs are better at this than others. Some dogs are more social. Um, so they're more friendly with people and they desire attention from people. Um, and they may require management in a social setting, which they have to meet a standard, so they have to be able to be under control in social settings. Um, we have specific standards that all of our dogs have to meet before they're issued to a client. Um, but some dogs require a little more management than other dogs. Um, and that dog might enjoy working in a really busy setting with a lot of people. Um, another dog, sometimes some dogs are a little more aloof and they don't really, they're not that interested in people. 
and they might not enjoy working in a really busy setting with lots of people. So uh, a third thing that we look at with the dog is the environment. And that's the ability to work comfortably in a given setting. So some, for example, a dog with a really confident temperament and comfortable with lots of daily stimulation and changing environments would prefer a city environment. And they might have trouble settling into a quieter, like country type lifestyle or suburban lifestyle, and they could become bored. Um, but then there are some dogs that are a little more sensitive to really busy environments and they're not, they don't like them as much and they prefer and actually thrive working like out in the country in a quieter environment. Um, and they settle usually really well and they're content with a lower amount of work or easier routes and they don't become bored with that. So that's, so the environment we really take into account when working with um, matching the dogs. So I would like, so we match somebody who's confident and comfortable in the city with somebody in the city and somebody who, a dog who's more confident and comfortable in the country uh, with somebody who lives in the country or lives, you know, in a quieter area. The next aspect of the dog that we look at is their pace. So their pace is a natural working speed based on um, energy level of the dog and where they work most comfortably. So that varies from really slow, slow, moderate, moderate, moderate plus, and fast. Um, and they can adjust their their um, pace for changes, you know, that, that are needed in travel. Um, but every dog has like a natural gait where they're the most comfortable walking and can maintain that gait throughout the whole route. So we want to look at the pace of the dog and the pace that the client is uh, most comfortable walking at, and we try to match those as best as we can. The next thing we look at with the dog is their pull and harness. So the amount of pressure that the dog exerts on the harness when they're working. Some dogs like to pull really hard into the harness um, and they have a very strong pull. And sometimes they're very confident and they want to go fast and they want to pull, pull hard. And some clients um, that might strain a cli some clients' shoulders and their back, or especially if they had like a previous injury, um, but some clients enjoy having that little stronger pull because it really shows them where to go um, and it's very assertive and they like that feedback from the dog and they would prefer a dog that has pull like that rather than a dog that feels lighter in the harness. So a dog with a lighter pull, maybe we might look for a client that either doesn't prefer a strong pull or they need less pull physically. So that's what we look for with the pull. The next thing we look at about the dog is their size. So we have lots of variety in sizes. We have some smaller dogs. Um, we have larger dogs. A small dog may be 45, 50 pounds. A larger dog could be up to 85, 90 pounds. Um, we have a, a big variety. Um, but we, so what we look at with the dog is the smaller one doesn't necessarily need to go with a, a client who, who is shorter in stature. Um, we have harness handles that are, uh, we can make them longer, so they're more. So a, a taller person can go with a shorter dog, um, but we don't want to put a very, very tall person with a very short dog because it might be harder for them to work with it if they can't feel the pull or the dog isn't working, isn't as comfortable, and the client has to bend over to work with the dog more. Um, so we do look at their size. 
uh, we want the de- the benefits of a smaller dog is that they fit comfortably on public transportation. Um, you can tuck them into smaller places. They require a smaller crate. Um, some people think they're slower, but that's not necessarily true. Sometimes they just take shorter steps and walk just as quick. Um, a larger dog uh, can provide more stability for a client who has like balance issues or or just needs a dog that's that's taller if they're a taller client. Um, sometimes it's a little more challenging for them to fit in public transit um, or in smaller spaces. So we also weigh that against their stability and and they're not necessarily faster because they're, they're taller. Sometimes they're even slower. So we, each dog has a different pace and it doesn't always, it's not always in conjunction with how tall the dog is. And we can also do harness modifications to help with uh, uh, using a taller dog for a client that is shorter in stature. And the last thing that we look at for the dog is their controllability. So there's a lot of diversity in regards to the dog's intensity and reaction to distractions in the environment. So dogs get distracted. You know, we do the best we can to make sure that our dogs are very focused on their work and that they can be, maintain focus and not be distracted while working. Um, but some dogs are more or less distracted and it depends on their temperament sometimes. So some, a naturally confident and assertive dog um, sometimes is quick to re- react to distractions in the environment. It might be a little harder to manage. They're very, because they're very passionate about working and going, going, going. And then sometimes they see a distraction and they're also passionate about looking at the distraction. Um, so sometimes you get that really high drive with the dog. Um, and some, that means they, some, they have a little bit more distraction level. Now, all of our dogs, once again, meet a standard. So they have to be able to be controlled um, while, while they're distracted to meet their class ready standard. Um, but some are just more energetic about it than others. Sometimes a dog is a little bit less confident or just a little more hesitant, and they can be very manageable with distractions, but they need more encouragement when they're working. So there's pluses and minuses to the distractibility. What's very important is that the dog is able to be physically controlled by the client with minimal strain or effort. Um, So we make sure that the dog, that is what the dog has to meet in order to be a class ready guide dog. Uh, When you go into class and you get a dog, sometimes you think, oh, my dog is very distracted, but it's also a transition. So the dog going to a new handler in class, it's like somebody going to school and having a substitute teacher. They're not sure. They're trying to see what they can get away with. And sometimes it's a little bit, you see a little bit of more excitability and more distractibility initially in class with the dog. Uh, And then that gets better as you go on. Uh, so that's something that's also very important as you're transitioning to getting a new dog in class or in a home delivery situation. It takes a little bit of time for you to establish that, that you're in charge and that the dog needs to listen and the dog needs to um, follow that for you. So then we look at the information that we have about the client. So we look at their, their vision Uh, variations um, from low vision to uh, variability of vision, the stability of their vision. 
or if they have a total loss of vision, uh, we take all of those in different conditions into account um, when we look at, at the dogs that we are going to place with, with, each, with each client. Um, so sometimes a dog with a little more initiative, a little more uh, better at patterning or destination location, um, in the dog that's more a little more able to work at a higher level of independence uh, might be placed with somebody who has uh, a total vision loss. Uh, it's just we want to look at you know what the dog's gonna how the dog's gonna do best with the client, and we also take into account that residual vision uh, may be um, used to provide support or take responsibility away from from the dog. Uh, so. We need to work with those things with the client to work best with the dog. Um, so it's always good to keep that in mind when we're doing matching. And here I'm going to talk a little bit about hearing. Um, so we, uh, we ask uh, for to, to know if the client is hard of hearing or deaf blind. Uh, and then we take very specific, we look at very specifically at the dogs that we train specifically for our program for deaf blind. So we have an actual program at Leader Dogs for clients who are deafblind, and we do special training with the dogs. And it takes a little bit longer for the dogs to complete that training because we had extra, sometimes there are extra things that we teach the dogs to do um, to help. And sometimes it just takes longer for the dogs to, to learn because a lot of them, because they take a lot of the voice away. So you take your, um, a lot of the vocal commands we don't necessarily use with a client with a dog that's been trained for a deafblind. Uh, so the first thing we look at for matching um, is height. So the height of the dogs, because many people with a dual sensory loss also experience balance issues. So we look for and train dogs that have ability to like recover from a client's loss of balance and be able to be stable for that client. And they, a lot of times select taller dogs for that program because they're able to be a little bit more stable for that client. Um, clients trained in the deafblind program uh, need to appreciate physical touch as a reinforcement. So a lot of, of petting and touching is very important that the dog enjoys that um, as reinforcement because the, that's a, a very common thing, especially if a client doesn't use voice to communicate. So the dog will be mostly rewarded by physical praise. Um, initiative, they look at the initiative of the dog. So the dog has to demonstrate the confidence to guide. For clients who don't receive auditory or visual information, the dog should demonstrate the confidence to make decisions, to find or target previous target, previously taught landmarks, which can give clients useful information about the environment. Uh, the dog is, also has to be easily engaged in learning additional skills associated with deafblind programs, such as dual training. So some of our dogs are dual trained, um, as a hearing dog, as well as a guide dog. And we do a, a whistle recall with our dogs where we use a physical whistle um, to train the dogs to come back to us, especially for a client. And that's really useful for a client who doesn't use voice. The deaf, uh, deafblind clients, the, the dogs need to be a little bit more mature sometimes when being placed with a client who is deafblind socially, because the deafblind client might not be aware of people approaching them or trying to interact with their dogs. So some clients must, and some clients must interact 
closely with other people in case of like a tactile ASL user. So a mature dog has to have very good social behavior uh, and has to not interrupt that. If they're doing tactile ASL, the dog has to not interrupt that going on. Um, so they have to be calm and, and just sit down or sit or lay by their side so that they're able to and not interrupt, not want to be like physically being pet by the other person. Um, so it's really important that the dog is mature and, and very socially mature. It's also important that dogs are, that they're very, very attentive to their handler. Um, dogs being matched to handlers who communicate without their voice must be attentive and motivated to work despite loss of the source of support, direction, and reinforcement that the use of voice provides. So they're not, they need to be able to be attentive to the client without the client using any voice. And some dogs prefer to, you know, have vocal praise and have somebody using their voice. So these dogs have to be very attentive to body language um, and physical praise and physical uh, like hand signals and things. They have to just be very in tune with that. Um, and actually during our deafblind program, when the, when the uh, trainers are working with these dogs, halfway through the program, they turn off their voices. So they stop using verbal praise. They stop using their voice for, for cues for the dog. Uh, so that the dog becomes used to that type of work. So they only use hand signals and leash cues. So the next thing we'll talk about with clients, with all clients now, was the physical characteristics and abilities. Um, there's a lot of variation. Everybody has different physical characteristics. Um, I went mentioned them a little bit earlier. Height, balance, gait. Um, sometimes if a client has a unique gait, um, the dog needs to be able to be okay with that and comfortable walking with them. And so we have to make sure that, that a dog matched to that person has is able to accommodate that. Um, stamina, we want to uh, match a dog with a higher stamina to a client who has a higher stamina who's going to be going further. Um, if, a client, if a dog has a lower stamina level, um, we prefer to match them with somebody who has a lower stamina level or would prefer to have a dog that settles better. Um, so that's something we take into account. We don't want the dogs to be having to be encouraged to, you know, walk on longer routes or go faster if that's not their natural, what they would like to do naturally. Uh, we look at natural pace of travel, um, physical strength. So we also keep in mind the potential strength of a dog. So some dogs have the potential. They can be a really calm and easygoing dog, but they could have the potential to be very strong. And we want to make sure that we match them with a client that can handle that strength um, and reaction times, so reflexes. All right. And we want the dog to thrive in the client's home and work environment. And all dogs are trained in all environments to our class-ready standards. Um, so we, we ask the client about their home environment. So we ask their, the size of, of the home environment. Is it an apartment? And is it a house? Um, how much space do you have for the dog? If it's a smaller apartment, we may match with a smaller dog um, or a dog with a lower energy level because there's not as much space. We ask about the park area. Um, so if you would like to park your dog on cement, um, we usually do special training with the dogs to make sure that they will park on cement for you. Um, 
We ask about family members. If there's children, we want to give the dog extra exposure to children during training. Um, if there's other animals in the home, we also make sure that the dogs are given extra exposure to different animals. So if there's cats or other dogs, we want to make sure that the dog is comfortable living in that home environment. Um, we also look at the busyness or distractions. Are there stray dogs around? Is there a lot of you know food, pedestrians, heavy traffic? All of those things are really important when we want to match the dogs to the clients. If the client works outside of the home, um, we look at what they use for transportation. Do they take a bus? Do they take a subway? I want to make sure that the dog is comfortable on all forms of those transportation. Um, what type of work does the client do? Is it a calm environment or is it a very busy environment? Is it very loud or very quiet? Is, there, is it an industrial setting? Um, where will the dog be housed at work? On a crate, in a, in a tie down? Um, where under a desk, uh, where's the dog going to be comfortable and what type of park area they're going to have at their work? Is it gravel? Is it grass? Is it cement? We ask all of these things to make sure that the dogs will be comfortable in those areas, especially if we need to do extra exposure before the client comes into class. We also look at the expected workload for the dog. Um, what routes are they going to be travel? Sidewalk, side of the road, busy cities, quiet neighborhoods, um, the frequency of the travel versus settling with the client. So is a dog going to be doing route after route after route, or are they going to have long periods of settling? And we want to make sure that the dogs who prefer to settle are going to a client who, who will be settle, needing them for settling. Uh, if it's a long route, route is make sure the dog has enough stamina for very long routes. And building that stamina during training is, is something that we can do to look at. Um, if we're matching with a client who does long routes. Complexity and intensity of the routes. Uh, if the environments are very complex, sometimes we can look at that like in the client's video and we can train the dogs in more complex environments that are similar to their home environment. On uh, what type of public transportation they take. Um, are there any special requirements? Do they travel internationally? Now, now that's kind of difficult with COVID, but... If that's something that you do, you know, the dog's going to need some extra training with airports and, and all of that. Um, does the client use escalators? Um, is the, does the dog need to work on the right side? And then we finally, we, we really look at the client's personality and their preferences. Like I talked about earlier, um, their confidence level with travel. Are they more hesitant or are they very confident? And, you know, if, if they're more hesitant, they might need a dog that's a little more assertive. Um, are they extroverted or introverted? Do they want a dog that is going to draw a lot of attention? Or do they want a dog that's more going to blend in with the environment? Um, what's their preference? Uh, what kind of breeds do they want? You know, a golden, a golden retriever, lab cross, uh, lab, German shepherd, um, a gender. Do they want a male or a female? Is there a preference for that? Um, their color. And then we always like to know why. Why they're having a preference? Is it because, is it something that, um, you know, they had a, a black lab growing up and so they prefer a black lab? You know, it, always, you know, understanding the reasoning why behind a preference is really important because we really want to accommodate the preference. We also want to accommodate the best match for the client. Um, and if there's any prior guide dog experience, that's also something we take into account. So 
that's everything that I have about matching. Um, and Cheryl, I think we were going to open it up for questions. Uh, yes. Uh, anybody want to? Anybody who wants to ask a question can raise their hand. Hello. Hello. Can, can you hear me? Okay. We sure can. All right. Um, I want to ask you, Catherine, about the uh, guide dogs who work for the hard of hearing and, and deaf and all that. Because they're incapable of uh, auditorial stuff. Um, so how do you do, I mean, how do you do that with somebody who can't hear or whatever? Do, do you rely more on the dog or something? Oh, so, so what we do is we train, all the dogs are trained with hand signals. Mm -hmm. And so the dogs know, so the dog learns with the hand signals, which, you know, how to, how to actually guide. So the left and right, and we use hand signals with all of our dogs in training, but mm -hmm. with the specific guide dogs that are for clients who are hard of hearing or deafblind, uh, we only use hand signals. So the dog really has to work well for hand signals. And sometimes we'll do things like pat the leg, um, pat your leg or do different things to get the dog's attention. Um, when working with clients who are hard of hearing or deafblind, uh, we have instructors that that know ASL and tactile ASL. So sometimes, so they'll work with them using the ASL or tactile ASL. Uh, we also have uh, different ways we can work with clients who are hard of hearing uh, through their hearing aids. We have FM loop capability. We have uh, speakers. So we have like a microphone with a speaker that we can use. Uh, we basically use whatever the client uses for communication. When And then with the dog, just what does ASL stand for? Uh, sorry. American. Oh, sorry. American Sign Language. Ah, okay. Okay. I, I, I didn't catch I'm sorry. Language. Yeah, that's okay. I should have specified. Yeah, we okay. use American Sign Language. So that's something that we use specifically. And there's actually a tactile American Sign Language uh, that we can use where it's very hands-on. Um, yeah. Well, you write words in people's hands. I got that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. Somebody mute me, please. Whoever is hosting. Because my question is my question is funny. Thank you so much for your question. No problem, Catherine. Well, Catherine. Yes. I have a question for you. All right. Um, with RJ, who's my dog, I got in when I went through the deafblind program. It's funny. I'm not hearing through my headset, or I can't hear very well. So you might have to speak up, Catherine. Okay. Okay. No worries. Um, uh, RJ is uh, very, very attentive. I mean, he's always right next to me, unless he's in his crate. <laughs> <laughs> he's but, probably still listening for you in his crate. <laughs> oh, yeah, he is. He is. All I got to do is open my office door and I can hear him get up. <laughs> mm -hmm. But um, he's he's very good. And he's um, I've been very happy with him. We haven't been able to work as much because of the COVID and me having to be at home all the time because of my medical conditions. So, but we get in as much as we can, but he's mm -hmm. doing fine. So, would you let Wendy know that he's not ate any more leashes and he's doing fine? <laughs> I will let her know. <laughs> Thank you. Go ahead, please, Glenda. Y'all have much, what uh, information do you get from your puppy raisers and how much interaction uh, do you have when you when you consider uh, the dogs that 
you know, you, you're going to work with, et cetera. Because I think the puppy raisers are really the foundation of a good dog. I agree with you, Glenda. Uh, we get a lot of information. I didn't actually go through that, but we do a lot with our puppy raisers. The puppy raisers fill out uh, surveys and questionnaires on their dogs throughout the time they're puppy raising. And we have all that access to all that information when we pick up our dogs. They also fill out a form when they drop the dogs off to be trained uh, with up-to-date information about what the dog's doing and how well, how they're training and uh, what their positive aspects are and things that they need to work on. Um, so and we are always able to contact them if we have any questions about the dogs. Uh, we take into account the location that the dog's been raised in too. So sometimes we'll know that the dog's good with children because the puppy raiser wrote on their questionnaire that they have children in the home and the dog does well with them. Uh, we, we do rely on the puppy raisers a lot for um, knowing the house behaviors of the dog. Uh, so because they've been living with the puppy raisers for their first year and sometimes more during the pandemic, we actually had placed a lot of the dogs back with their puppy raisers uh, while we were waiting to be able to have clients come back. Uh, I was a puppy raiser when I was in high school. So I, I raised two puppies for leader dogs and I know how difficult it can be and, and how important it is that foundation uh, for housebreaking, for socialization and for their basic obedience uh, we are very, very proud of all of our puppy raisers, and we really couldn't do this without them. So that we take into account everything that they're telling us about the dogs, um, and we trust that they know the dogs because they've lived with them for their first year. Uh, during training, we also provide updates to the puppy raisers um, at five, at three weeks, five weeks, and thirteen weeks in training. Um, the puppy raisers get; uh, they also get pictures of the dogs in their harnesses and working. Um, and then once they're issued to a client, uh, there's an opportunity for the client to meet the puppy raiser, Good. have further interaction. And that's completely up to the client and the puppy raiser. Um, but we do provide a visitation during class with the, with the puppy raisers. Uh, we have puppy raisers in um, that are all over the United States. And we also have a prison program. So we have puppy raisers that are uh, that are in prison. So we raise, we have several prisons that we work with where we have puppies placed with them. And that is a really cool program as well. So with that, the, the visitation is, is obviously not, not the same, but we do have, there is a ability for communication through letters uh, with a puppy raiser if your puppy raiser was was actually in prison. Um, does that answer your question? I've muted hers because we don't have much time left. We've got a couple more hands. Kat, uh, I missed the majority of this presentation because I've been on the phone to keep ringing with doctors oh, no. calling me, making appointments and this and that and the other thing. I'm hoping I'm able to listen to this thing again. But I do have a couple of questions. I just was in California with the GBD folks in San Rafael mm -hmm. doing my guide dog immersion class for about mm -hmm. a week. And they did... And they did they did give me some training, basic dog commands, Juno training with a dog, and I tried that at the at the at the end of my uh, stay, and then I did very well. But being I'm a diabetic, mm -hmm. I was my two questions that I have is: Does your organization offer an 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 a guide dog immersion class training for people that haven't that that, that need that? Because I, because that's a prerequisite before you get 
having a guide dog because you need to know where you're going. The dog isn't going to know where you want to go. The dog's primary purpose is to keep you from getting out of harm's way and um, and so forth. We and have, yes, we have an orientation and mobility uh, class that you can come and take here. Uh, okay. We have where you work individually with an orientation mobility and spe uh, specialist. And you can come to that as many times as you like to. It's usually a week-long class. Okay. Uh, sometimes, and during that class, we do the same thing too. At the end, usually we do a Juno session and a guide dog inter, inter like introduction. Right. We also, uh, we do serve many clients who are diabetic. Uh, we do not do specific training for the dog for diabetic, like alerting, if that's what you're asking. That was going to be my next question because, yeah, because I, I, I have, if I were to get a dog, it would be a lab because okay. like, like, Labs have a sixth sense when it comes to people with their blood sugars running high and low. And I have dogs that, that, that in the past have had told me, alerted me, my wife told me my blood sugars would start barking. Then I would check and it's like, yep, I'm low or high or whatever. But yes, I didn't know whether, whether, whether you offer that. Like the same thing for people that like, like golden retrievers, they have a sixth sense where they can, they, they think, they can let the person know if they're going to have a seizure, probably not, if, if they're left, ep epileptic. And I didn't know if you were aware of that. It's amazing how these dogs are. As a matter of fact, labs today that they have in the airports now are actually looking for people that have COVID because now they can actually smell. Yes. That, that totally thing. blows me away. That totally yeah, blows me away. That we can, we can train the dogs. And, and I, I've heard of golden retrievers doing, you know, diabetic alerts and, and right. labs doing seizures, seizure alerts, but we don't actually specifically train them to do those things for our clients. The main focus is guide work. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes the dogs will naturally pick up on those things. Right. And, but we and, don't do a specific training for them. And one more question, because I've been following the guide, the guide dogs for the blind and have a, they had a, they did a documentary a few years ago, about an hour and 20. You can watch it on Netflix or, or Hulu. It's amazing how they do it. And I'm sure you have, you can relate. And then they, and the Disney folks loved it so much that they created a series on Disney plus and they did about six six episodes with the same title as the documentary pick called Picket a Litter. Yes. So I highly recommend everybody watching it. It's priceless. They'll bring you happy tears and everything else. But I do have um, my other question that I have is now that I got to remember what it was because you brought something up. Um, okay, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to it's jump okay. in, Anthony. It's okay. Have, it's I'm okay. I have about three or four. Right. Minutes I, I, I understand that. And so um, uh, we need to have you all to, to wrap up. And if people have additional questions, if you want to contact uh, Cheryl or Catherine, you want to give them, you, well, you probably want to get, get your information out, just contact me and I'll make the connection for you. Yes, I'm very willing to answer questions afterwards or okay. through contact. Okay. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Catherine.